Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey. My flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Please be seated. God says, with respect to his scattered sheep, I will seek them. I will find them. And I will care for them. In Matthew's gospel, with God's help, we'll finish our look at Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Good morning, by the way. We'll be reminded that the Good Shepherd has come. God Himself has come. And He's come to gather His own to Himself. As you're turning to Matthew 9, I want to just um, share with you something that, that has come to my mind in light of this passage from what seems like a lifetime ago. 35 years ago, um, I was hired to, as a cub reporter um, in Spokane, um, to come to. Idaho and work, um, and I, I remember being called to the publisher's office um, one day, and I, I was surprised that he even knew I was working for him, and, uh, and he, he asked me lots of nice questions, you know, to, to kind of break the ice, and, and then he looks at me really seriously, and he says, uh, um, 
when you get over there, I want you to change the license plates on your car right away. And I'm like, well, what, what, what are you even talking about, you know? And he, and, and he says, you know, you're, we're sending you over there and you're going to start writing stories about what people in Idaho think about people from Washington and Oregon and that place that isn't mentioned in public. Um, how do they feel about um, everybody moving to Idaho? And he said, change your plates. 35 years ago, people are still asking that question. <laughs> and after 35 years, I got a little street cred now. You know, people don't, don't realize I'm from somewhere else. What do you think about when you think about the consequences of the population growth here? That is not a new thing. Um, higher home prices, you know, longer lines at the grocery store, um, more traffic. What, what, what's your attitude about all of that? <laughs> what is your honest attitude about stuff like that? Tom, Tom. It's a setup, isn't it? Does it occur to us, church? That God in his good providence is moving a mission field right to our front door. Uh, a growing population in God's economy is simply a larger mission field for God's people. Um, and, and we will embrace this mission as a church and as individual church members only to the extent that we see lost people as Jesus sees lost people. Uh, only to the extent that we feel toward, you know, those people, the, the way Jesus feels toward those people. And then move toward them as Jesus directs us to move toward others with kingdom purpose. This is how the prophecy of Ezekiel 34 is to be fulfilled. Christ, the good shepherd, who is God himself, has come to gather his sin-ravaged sheep to himself. And he's called his church, his disciples, to be workers in this great ingathering of his elect. And so this is the model given to us in Matthew chapter 10, um, but it is um, set up for us in a foundational way here in these closing verses of Matthew 9. The king's mission is a mission of compassion for his unreached people. Now let's just see if these things be so. Verse 35 of Matthew 9. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out 
workers into his harvest. Now let's just think about where we've been in Matthew's gospel. God is reclaiming his world and his people through the work of his anointed king. The king is Jesus. Amen? And this eternal king has come. He has been, he stepped out of eternity, out of heaven, born into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's come for what purpose? To save his people out of their sins. God the Son now has been demonstrating his complete sufficiency for this very task by conquering disease and demons and even death itself, the the, the ravages that the curse of sin have brought to humanity. And this healing work that we were looking at earlier in Matthew 9 and Matthew 8 is really a foretaste of the the new heaven and the new earth where there there will be no sickness. Do you you look forward to that? Where there, There will be no evil. There will be no death. And it demonstrates Jesus' sufficiency and Jesus' authority to heal our sin-sick souls, uh, to, to save us out of our sins, not, not just from hell, as wonderful as that is, but to be saved out of our sinful tendencies even, let alone sin's hellish destiny. All these miracles that we've been studying, reading about, signs of the Messiah's identity draw massive crowds, Matthew says. The needy people of Galilee are always crowding around Jesus now. The people all around him, wherever he goes throughout the cities and and villages in in Galilee, a a quiet, peaceful life uh, uh, for he and his disciples is not on the agenda. They, They are constantly interrupted by people. And our text this morning tells us that Jesus looks at this mass of people, the crowds, and does not feel contempt, and does not feel disgust, and does not feel exasperation. No, he sees so many lost, perishing, hell-bound individuals, and he is moved with compassion. So Matthew tells us, first of all, of a great tragedy as seen through the eyes of Jesus. I want us to see this tragedy. Look at verse 36. Seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the people of Galilee, his own people, Jewish people, Uh, And without regard for their social standing, uh, without regard for their family backgrounds, uh, without regard for their level of education, uh, he looks upon them all with compassion. He sees them in their sin. He sees them in their self-direction, in their self-assurance. And he sees them as those who are ravaged by the empty effects of empty religion destroyed by the lust of their own flesh, some of them. He sees people. And he looks right through their appearances and their demeanor and their circumstances. Jesus sees a great tragedy here. 
lost sinners living on the very edge of hell, and they don't even know it. You know, when we think of the world's uh, spiritually lost people, it's easier, I think, for, for most of us to think of you know, people in places like India and, and Nepal where uh, we support many missionaries, uh, HBC does, through uh, Project 92. Maybe we think of Africa. We think of, you know, we're, we're blessed to be sending a team of, of five people to uh, Togo, West Africa, in just a couple of weeks. I, I, I trust you're praying for our team. Um, maybe we think of Tanzania. You know, you just heard from Pastor Scott. We'll be hearing next week uh, from our friends with Faces for Hope. What, what's, what's going on with the Maasai tribe in that place? Is God still rescuing girls? Not just from the, the nightmare that is their daily life, but from their sins? Yes, he is. But, but here is Jesus looking into the faces of his own people fellow Galileans, neighbors, some of them, if you will. And his impulse, as he takes in this great tragedy, is not complacency that comes from just being familiar. It's not contempt. It's compassion, says Matthew. How many of you know that people in our neighborhoods and our schools right here at home are just as dead in their trespasses and sins as people way across the ocean someplace. God is bringing the mission field here. We're surrounded by people who have gone their own way and are, and are far from God. And their lives bear evidence of this. They, they may even be church attenders. In fact, some of you might have thought, well, earlier when I mentioned all the population growth being a mission field, you might have thought to yourself, well, you know, I think the preacher's wrong because um, it seems like everybody moving here is a Christian. And, and it would be easy in our experience as a fellowship here, not thinking about, you know, beyond the, the, the fellowship here, that maybe that's the case. How many of you know we, we could not be more wrong about that? Please do not confuse conservatism with Christianity. They are not the same thing. Yes, we're going to go there. People fleeing to Idaho as some kind of political or social redoubt offers them no shelter from God's wrath that is soon to come. They they need the only shelter available, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of our neighbors need to know that their Republican Party membership card will not save them from God's wrath any more than their guns or their hatred of public schools or the federal government. People need Jesus. Christless conservatism is our Galilee. Have you noticed that? Now, praise God, so many that he has brought to our area love Jesus and have settled here even in our fellowship and other fellowships that we're familiar with. So, so don't misunderstand me, but as a church, let's not miss the big picture 
many conservatives move here and even seek to settle in churches here, uh, yet they are without the new birth. They're religious and moral and have some of the same interests that, that, that some of us do, and yet they are without God and therefore without hope in the world. And will we look upon a growing population here as a growing mission field? Meaning that as Christ does, we would look upon those folks with compassion. So, so what is Matthew 9 showing us? Um, the king's mission starts at home. And, and so does ours. Notice with me that the crowds are described uh, still in, in verse 36. We're making tremendous progress, aren't we? Um, they're described as distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek root that, that, that is rendered distressed, some, I think some of your Bibles say harassed, some say weary, um, literally means flayed. I mean, it's a very graphic description here. Like sheep whose skin is torn off and all mangled. An enemy has ravaged them. And to be downcast, to be dispirited or helpless means to be, to be thrown down. This, this great mass of people, this crowd, Jesus sees them as individuals, each of them spiritually wounded, spiritually wearied, like helpless sheep who've been attacked by a predator. They're like sheep who've gone their own way and without a shepherd's love and protection and care, they're defenseless. No one has come to their aid. No one has come to their defense. Least of all, their own spiritual leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, the crummy shepherds, Ezekiel's prophecy speaks of. I suggested in, um, you're still listening, I suggested in the pastorgram last week that you look, for the sake of comparison, that you uh, look again at, at Psalm 23. I don't know if anybody did that. Um, but Psalm 23, as you know, um, is, a, is a beautiful description of the blessing that belongs um, to those who belong to the Lord, our good shepherd. Uh, the, the Lord, our shepherd, is our faithful king. Uh, our faithful king takes pastoral responsibility for his people. He cares for us. He provides what is necessary for us. Jesus has now come and, and he has said, I am the good shepherd. Uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus has come not just to, to teach and to preach, though he does so, but to eventually go to that cross at Calvary and be flayed himself. To be downcast himself and to die on that cross for the sins of his people. So the Jesus who, who looks at the crowds with compassion is the Jesus who knows this is coming.
Psalm 23, though it has been appropriated by the culture, lots of people outside the church know Psalm 23, um, is exclusively the Christian psalm. Did you know that? It doesn't apply to everybody. Um, this, this is the psalm that every one of God's people who have a relationship with God uh, as their good shepherd, their shepherd king, can sing with great gladness. In Christ, I have provision. If you are a Christian, you have everything that you need, that your soul needs, uh, you, you shall not want. You will, you will never lack in that sense. In Christ, you have God's presence. Do you ever forget that sometimes? You don't need to fear anything, really, because he's with you, and he loves you. What a provision is the presence of the Lord with his people. I don't have to go to some physical place, like the temple in Jerusalem or some cathedral someplace. He is with me in his fullness all the time. In Christ, I have God's protection. Nothing happening in this world is a barrier to my being blessed by God, my good shepherd. Nothing. He prepares a banquet table of abundance for my soul in the very presence of my enemies so that they look upon me and wonder, what's the deal with these people? In Christ, I have God's promises. All that I experience in this life is all temporary. This world is not my home. I'm passing through as David was passing through, as Israel was passing through. And so it is for the Israel of God, his church, our future is utterly dependent upon the unending goodness and mercy of the Lord that follow us everywhere we go. We can't get away from his goodness. We, we can't escape his mercy. Aren't you glad for this? And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever under the care of the good shepherd. And so why look at that for sake of comparison? Because here in Matthew 9, Jesus is looking at the crowds and he sees a great mass of people who have none of that. None of that. Though they are Jews, they lack God's provision of forgiven sin. Though their religion is about God, they lack God's personal presence with them. Though they have a heritage of faithfulness to God, if they look far enough back, they themselves know nothing of this, and they're without the assurance of protection from God's wrath. And though they know a lot about God, they've no assurance that his promise to hold a people dear to himself forever can rightly be claimed for themselves. They think maybe that's true, but could it really be true for them personally? And the confusion comes from where? They've been misled by their crummy shepherds to believe that everything in their religion was just fine. 
that they had bad shepherds. They had corrupt spiritual leaders. Remember, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had, had abused God's people by adding to God's law, his moral law. They turned relationship with God into a religion of heartless rituals and self-made morality. They, they'd actually trained God's people to believe they were right with God simply because they were descendants of Abraham. And the shepherds of Israel took care of themselves rather than taking care of God's sheep, his people. Remember, the Jewish religious leaders didn't feed the flock the truth of God. Instead, they they corrupted the scriptures for their own gain. In fact, Jesus, in his teaching, kept saying, I know you've been told this, but I say to you. I know you've been told that, but I say to you. You've been hearing it all wrong. Century after century, this abuse of God's sheep continued. And remember, God said through the prophet Ezekiel, Behold, I myself will seek my sheep and care for them. And now here is Jesus, the good shepherd, God himself, seeking his sheep that he might gather them in and care for them and deliver them. What a, what a great tragedy this is. And Matthew wants us to know, before we get into chapter 10 and see the ins and outs of discipleship, um, that Jesus' primary response to this great tragedy is a great tenderness. Not disgust, not exasperation, but, but tenderness. Look, at, still in verse 36, he felt compassion for them. Circle that word compassion in in your neighbor's Bible because they're going to forget this stuff. And the the thing is, is the word compassion is really important in Matthew's gospel. It'll come up again and again and again and again because this is the heart of God for sinners right here in our Galilee. Some of your Bibles say he was moved with compassion. That, that's actually better uh, because the Greek phrase here refers to gut-level emotions, strong emotions uh, such that a person is, is moved physically. It's a very strong word. A couple quick examples. In the Old Testament, we read of, of, of David's son Solomon um, mediating a dispute between two women who both claimed a child as their own. Remember what I'm talking about? And Solomon, you know, the, the, the original wise guy, right? I mean, he, he, the Lord had just blessed Solomon with wisdom and, and, and Solomon, you know, in determining which woman was telling the truth, just simply said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll just, we'll just cut the child in half. You can each have a half obviously not intending to do that, but to tease out reality from falsehood. And the lying woman says what? Fine. I mean, what a horrific thing. And yet the child's mother, the scripture says, was deeply stirred with compassion over her son. No, let let her have him. Let her have him. That's, That's compassion. That's the compassion of Jesus looking at the crowds like sheep without a shepherd in his Galilee. 
the king has come to gather his sheep. So here he is, deeply stirred as he sees um, not people who are irritating, not people who are clogging the streets, uh, making the lines at the market longer. Uh, He sees people captive and ravaged by the enemy of souls. And he doesn't just see people who need to be free of disease, though he will heal them. And he doesn't just see people who are hungry, but he will feed them. He doesn't just see people who need to be cleaned up morally, ethically, though all who come to Christ will be so cleaned up, changed. No, Jesus primarily sees a people who don't know what it is to be made right with God, to be justified. To, to, to be restored as God's image bearers. To belong to a shepherd king who is so different from the shepherds of Israel in their day. A king of love whose kingdom endures forever. So he responds to all of this great tragedy with, with, with this great tenderness. And I, I cannot help but think That there's a correlation here. See how this is really complex theology, right? There's a correlation here between the way Jesus sees people and the depth of compassion. And I have to confess to you, um, many times I don't see people the way Jesus sees people. Aren't you glad you can't relate to that? I'm surrounded by Christless people in my community, my Galilee, if you will, and yet so often I see them simply as uh, an increasingly busy background for the life I'm seeking to live. And some of you are like this too. So so it's, it's your turn now. Because I hear it in conversations. You see the crowd and mostly you see you know, you know, members of the opposite political party, perhaps, those who have different values than you, uh, people whose base habits repulse you because they're different from the base habits you're still fighting with in, in private. You're hearing this. And sadly, for some of us, we're more inclined to curse that darkness than to be moved with compassion for those who are trapped in it, blinded by it. How unlike our king we are sometimes. Not all the time, but but sometimes. Can we at least own that? Point of fact, the text shows um, the disciples are with Jesus when he sees the crowds with compassion, um, which means the disciples also saw the crowds. How interesting that nothing is mentioned of their compassion. You mean it's possible to be with Jesus and not see people the same way? Turns out. They are also Galileans. They see some people who attend their synagogues, perhaps. Uh, Those who buy the fish they catch. Uh, Those whose taxes Matthew has collected. 
How awkward. Um, they, they see fellow churchgoers and, and, and customers and, and neighbors and, and government workers, and, uh, but, but they don't see them as helpless, hell-bound sinners in need of the Savior they are now following. Not yet. They are with Jesus, yet still not seeing people as Jesus sees people. Alexander McLaren, the Scottish Baptist minister, says this. He says, the right emotion for a Christian looking on the Christless crowds is pity, not aversion. Pity, not anger. Pity, not curiosity. Pity, not indifference. Pity, compassion, same idea. So here is Jesus showing his disciples uh, what they should, what we should feel when we see a people alienated from God. And, and then he shows you know, what, what should be done with that feeling when we behold a people in our Galilee alienated from God. Now let me just stop here, and by that I don't mean I'm done, but I'm just, let me just stop here and say that um, lest you think this message um, is primarily that we should all just go home and feel bad. I mean, that, that's the goal of the elders here, right, in our teaching. As long as you go home and feel awful, um, that, then we've been well taught. And we'll, and we'll come back next Sunday, by God's grace, and, and have a go at it again. Now, that, that, that's not what this is about at all. Um, these disciples, King Jesus is turning ordinary men into men who will have compassion for the people that they see. He's going to make them apostles whose hearts burn for the lost. He's going to send them out into the world beyond Galilee and turn the world upside down in the power of Jesus Christ. It's just not quite there yet. And so it starts here with, with, with the heart, with what is seen and what is felt about what is seen. And our king, friends, is sufficient to save us out of the leprosy of our self-centeredness. Our, our king is sufficient to heal us from our crippling, disabling indifference at times toward those who are apart from Christ. He did this in the hearts of his first followers. And he's still doing this in the hearts of his people today. Amen? So we'll begin to see this when we wade into to Matthew 10. And, and we'll have to take great care because not everything in Matthew 10 is to do with us. Uh, we are not apostles living through the birth of the church in the first century. Um, when something is born, there are certain things going on that don't keep happening, right? We'll just leave it at that. So we'll be careful with Matthew 10, the way we understand that. But, but there will be really common themes that develop, starting with Matthew 10, that, that absolutely do apply to the kind of people Jesus is making us to be. 
Matthew 9 just shows us this great tragedy seen through the eyes of Jesus. It shows us the great tenderness that is our king's heart for his lost sheep. And finally, we see a great task, and th- those all start with the letter T, and isn't that nice? But, but we can remember it, maybe. What can be done about this? Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the, but the workers are few. Jesus switches metaphors here, obviously, and he sees the crowds not so much as, as lost sheep, battered sheep, leaderless sheep. He sees them now as a, as a vast, ripe field ready for harvest. But, but there's not many workers. And this metaphor of the harvest field is, is something that we want to be, be kind of careful with because Jesus' first um, hearers, you know, th- these disciples, Matthew's first readers, Jewish Christians, maybe wouldn't have thought of world missions like we do. We're so familiar with this passage. Um, it, from a Jewish understanding of the harvest, informed as they were by the law and the prophets, um, they would be thinking of judgment, not missions. The prophet Joel says this. Let the, God says this through Joel. He says, let the nations be roused up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat and there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Send in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. This, this is the harvest of judgment. A great harvest of judgment is coming, says the Lord. Jesus himself, the good shepherd, we'll see this later in Matthew's gospel, warns of this harvest in judgment. Listen to Matthew 13. He tells the the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? And and then he says, "The, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. Those who commit lawlessness will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said lots of stuff about hell. And he speaks of this harvest of judgment from which there is no second chance. Judgment is coming. And one day God's own people, rescued people, will be separated from all of that eternally from those who have rejected God and his Christ. And how many of you know based on the authority of Scripture we've just heard now, that it isn't our job to do the separating. We've got no business concluding in our minds that, oh, he's, he's one of God's elect, she's not. I can tell by the way they're dressed. I can tell by what party they belong to. I can tell by whether they homeschool or send their kids to public school. No, you can't. 
It's, it's, it's nothing to do with that. So here is Jesus, the good shepherd, going through all the cities, verse 35, the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he's teaching what? He's teaching the lost sheep that their dead religion is leading them to hell. He's teaching the lost sheep that they're naming God and singing about God and, and studying God what was not the same thing as loving God and obeying God and actually representing God in this world. He's teaching religious sinners that they are as weeds among the wheat. And a day of separation is coming. And that even right values with a wrong heart, a heart alienated from God, will be no protection on that day of judgment. I beg you to hear this. Have you run to Christ? Is, is he your refuge? Well, Jesus came teaching and preaching. Preaching what? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. The kingdom has come. It's growing even now in the hearts of all who surrender to Christ as king. And it begins with repentance, says the king. Turn from sin. Turn, turn to Christ. All of those miraculous healings that we've looked at so far in Matthew 8 and 9 testify for us of the greatest miracle of all. The salvation of a rebel heart. Christ is sufficient to do this work. So the harvest metaphor of judgment is not one that we should just blow past and ignore. But here Jesus is saying, look, there's a harvest that's to happen before that. Another kind of harvest. Look at verse 38. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And, and, and you and I in our, in our kind of Western mindset might be, might be inclined to think, oh, there's not enough laborers. We, should, we better get out there and do something. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, okay, I want you to get out there and do something. I want you to pray. I want you to pray. Soul work is God's work. So we pray. If sinners are to repent and turn to Christ, we must pray. If our own hearts are to beat with some measure of the compassion of Jesus when he sees the loss, we must pray. If our church is to grow as a sending church, um, not only experience the blessing of a supplying church, a studying church, a, a fellowshipping church. Those are really good things. Don't misunderstand. But all of that is meant to go along with being nurtured and growing and energized to love and serve the king by reaching the lost right here in our Galilee. Amen? How interesting that Jesus does not say then the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, so get out there with your How to Save People program and get to work. 
No, this is, this is God's work. So it, it requires God's directing. If you're to know how to reach out to your neighbor, you're going to need God's directing, not your how to reach Jesus card. Reach people for Jesus card. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus didn't send people who thought they already knew what to do. He didn't send people who thought they were qualified. He didn't send people who thought they were, they were even up to the task. He sent those who prayed. And, and he sent those who prayed until they cared as Jesus cares. He sent those who kept praying as they became those who, who could be sent, not overseas, but across the street. They, they prayed until they weren't clinging to their own comforts and agendas, their own sense of how things ought to be, how to get stuff to the way it was back in the 50s, that kind of thing. They prayed until they were no longer recoiling at the presence of sinners. They prayed themselves right out of their tendency to isolate and protect themselves from whatever it is that's out there. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers. Well, that's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this window into your heart for those who are yet apart from you, yet are your chosen ones. And Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts as only you can by your spirit, that we might be moved as you are moved. And Lord, that we might not take away from a wonderful text like this, that we should just feel the weight of our own inadequacies, but that we might pray hopefully that you are yet changing us, each one of us, into the kinds of people who are moved for your mission, for your glory. And so we ask you this, Jesus, for your namesake, for the, for the witness of your people in this community. Amen.